Some of you saw this article by Matthew Paris. He's a journalist who grew up in Africa, or I should, should say he has spent his early years in Africa, and then went back to Africa as an adult. And he wrote down his reflections in an article in the Times called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. And what he says in this article is fascinating. Catch what he says. He said, traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now, a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is a part of the package. I would, um, <clears throat> but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to liberate it and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a distinctness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. I was intrigued by this one phrase that he said. Describing the Christians, there was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world. Now think about those words. Liveliness, the opposite of a deadness. A curiosity, opposite of apathy or lack of concern. An engagement with the world opposite of retreat from the world. This is a, a fascinating description, not only of these Christians, but it could be said of Jesus as well. For example, in the book of Acts, the apostle Peter said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, for God was with him. So Christians should be known as those who are lively and curious and engaged with this world because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was exactly that way as well. So now as we think about how the gospel of Jesus forms us into a community of Jesus that exists for the mission of Jesus here in Bryan College Station and beyond, we're going to take another step this week. Last week we looked at the commission that Jesus gave his disciples but this week, we want to look at a way in which that commission is to be wrapped, to be adorned, we might say. And so here's a key thought as we open the scriptures this day. Engaging in the mission of Jesus means not only proclaiming the gospel of Jesus with our lips, 
but also displaying the gospel with our lives, specifically in how we adorn the gospel by doing good to others and for others. So we're going to call our study today, Adorning the Gospel with Our Lives. There is something that we are called to say, but there's also something that we're called to do in this world. And so what I want you to do is is to join me as we go look at a moment in Jesus' ministry. When his disciples had asked him about the signs of the end, of the age, and it launches Jesus into several long, distinct teachings. And we're going to pick up this teaching in verse 31. So join me as we go back to this teaching of Jesus. Imagine ourselves there with those original disciples. And let's listen how Jesus tells them to think about what happens at the end of the age. And this is what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now those of you who've been with us at Mercy Hill Church know that the Son of Man is Jesus' own favorite self-designation. It harkens back to this vision that Daniel had of one who would be presented before God as the Son of Man and to him would be given all authority and all power and dominion. So Jesus is saying, when I take my throne, when I come in glory with all the angels and take my throne, and this is, this is an expression of him reigning and judging. So he's pointing us to the second coming. And let's remember what Jesus will eventually say to these same disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We noted last week that for anyone to say something like this is insane. Unless it is true. So the one who says all authority in heaven and earth says he will return again with his angels and he will sit on his throne. And then he says this in verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So Jesus is speaking of that moment in time when he says, enough. When he brings his kingdom and he's now sitting as judge and he says he will separate people into two groups. On his right will be a group called the sheep. On the left will be a group called the goats. And Jesus is the one separating these two. And then it says this in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What powerful words. Remember the story of the scriptures, which is the story of the world. From the foundation of the world, God intended for there to be a kingdom. He set up our primal parents, Adam and Eve, as the first kings and queens of creation. He invited humanity to partner with him in living righteous lives, in spreading the blessings of God's rule over the face of this world, of seeking the flourishing of this planet and its occupants. But as the story goes, and you know this, our first parents turned their backs upon God, wanting to reign and rule according to their own desires, according to what they thought was right and wrong. And that, that 
just left a wake of tragedy that we still live in to this day. And of course, God sent his son, Jesus, to atone for the sins of his people and to rise again. And the, the end of the story is about the great restoration. And so Jesus talked about this great restoration as the renewal of all things. Sometimes it's described as the new heavens and earth. This is the kingdom that Jesus speaks about. So verse 34, when he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus is pointing to that last day when he will set this world to right. When all that harms will be banished from his kingdom. And there's the presence of God once again dwelling with his people. Let me just ask you for a moment to imagine what it must be like to hear Jesus say these words to you. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Can you imagine what those words would feel like? Can you imagine the warmth that would flow over you? How your spirit would be revived? When at last there's something rising in you that says, at last, this is what I was created for. I can just imagine the hair standing up on our neck. Goosebumps all over our bodies. And so Jesus says he's going to say this to some people. And what's interesting is what he says next. The reason why he would say this to his sheep. For, here's, here's the reason. For, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Here Jesus says the righteous will respond this way. And someone says, wait a second here. Doesn't the Bible say something about nobody being righteous? Uh, you're right. It's found in Romans chapter 3. Here the apostle is quoting the Psalms. And he says, there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. This is a description of our natural condition. We come into this world naturally like this. Because we are descendants of our first primal parents. Each of us is born with an inward bent. So there is no one righteous. But there are some who are declared righteous and begin to show that righteousness. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 5. Speaking of Adam first. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more would those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. <laughs> what a beautiful description. God gives the abundant provision of his grace 
as a gift. And that gift is a gift of righteousness given to people like you and me. So that when we trust in Jesus, we are declared righteous. There's this great exchange that takes place where our sin is given to Jesus. It's been condemned in his flesh on the cross. And we're given the righteous status of Christ. That's because when we believe in Jesus, we are united to him. So that what was his perfect righteousness now is given to us. And so Jesus says the righteous are going to say that to him. Let me just point out one more thing here. Do you see here how Paul talks about those who've been given the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? How do we reign in life? I mean, most of us are not presidents and kings, prime ministers, but how do we reign in life? Let me suggest the answer is this. By giving ourselves in service to others, just like Jesus our king did when he went about doing good. We reign when our lives are brought back in line with God's design. And so Jesus says, when he brings these people before him, they're going to answer him by saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When do we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? This is a good question, isn't it? They don't remember doing this to Jesus. They don't remember ever visiting him in prison or seeing him naked and clothing him. And for some of us who live 2,000 years later, we haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. But he's going to say to all those people through the ages that he describes as his sheep, saying, Lord, when do we see you in these conditions and do something about it? And the king... Isn't that interesting? The Son of Man. Jesus describes himself now as the King. The King will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Here Jesus is picking up language from the prophets. that talked about humanity in a range of those who are the greatest to those who are the least. To those who have power and to those who have none to those who have resources and those who have precious few. And we've talked about this before here at Mercy Hill Church. This description of what Nicholas Wolterstorff described as the quartet of the vulnerable. The least of these include categories like widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. In the ancient world, these people were especially vulnerable. And in our modern world, these people are oftentimes especially vulnerable. And so Jesus says, whenever you did something kind and gracious to one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. There's another place where Jesus says something very intriguing. I want to bring it to your attention. This is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. He says, whoever gives one of, the, one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. One thing, I, I, I'm tempted to go off on a tangent here, but, but Jesus says little ones can be his disciples. And I love that. But he also says, look, if you do something as seemingly insignificant as give one of my little ones a cup of cold water, 
That doesn't escape my attention. You will not lose your reward. And believe me, when Jesus rewards, he gives it in spades. So this is something of what Jesus says to those on his right. But he continues. And let me just give you a heads up. The words he says next are grave. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What chilling words. What ominous words. Someone says, whoa, Jesus, this makes me very uncomfortable. I think Jesus would say, good, let it make you uncomfortable. I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to tell you that it matters the way that you treat other people. And just like I invited you a while ago to imagine what it must be like for Jesus to say to you, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the world prepared for you. I want you to also, just for a moment, imagine what it must be like to hear Jesus say something like this, depart from me, for I never knew you. What horror. The one who at one time said to me, come to me, or said to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Now says to those who have refused that, depart from me. And here he gives a reason. Verse 43, or 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. There is a like response. Verse 44, then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. That word minister simply means to serve, to care for, to be moved with compassion, to do something about a situation. Lord, when did we not minister to you? The Apostle John would later pick up on a similar theme when he was writing to some Christians living in some very uh, heated times in the Roman Empire. And this is what he wrote to them. By this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for for the brothers. But he says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here the Apostle John, writing to these people who say that they are followers of Jesus, said it is not consistent with who you say to follow to close your heart to those in need. If the love of God abides in you, if it, if it lives within you, it will overflow your life into the lives of others. And so back to Matthew 25, they asked this question, when did we see you 
and not minister to you, Jesus? And then he will answer them, verse 45, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. My friends, these are hard words from Jesus. But let us not respond by just saying, I don't like it, and brush it off. What if Jesus is speaking truth here? What if this foreseeable future is actually brought about when he sits on his glorious throne? When he comes to bring renewal to this earth? When he comes to bring his kingdom? And all those who refuse the invitation to come are excluded. We don't like that. But the question is not Do we like it? But is it true? My friends, don't miss this very important point. Jesus takes the way we minister or don't minister to others very personally. Jesus takes the way that we serve or not serve others very personally. Jesus takes the way we open our hearts or close our hearts to others very personally. And so let's take Jesus at his word and let's apply it to our lives in just a number of different ways here. First of all, let's anchor ourselves in the cross of Christ. Now, I think it would be very easy to take this teaching of Jesus and excerpt it from the rest of his ministry and to say, well, Jesus is teaching that you earn your place in heaven. And that's not what he's saying at all. Look at this. We don't do good works in order to earn salvation, but because we have experienced his salvation. We don't go about doing good in order to buy a ticket into heaven. That comes by free grace. But if we've experienced that free grace, it will overflow into our lives in doing good for others. John Calvin put it like this. He said, it is faith alone which justifies. That is, when we believe in Jesus and we're credited the righteousness of Christ, it's faith alone that justifies. We're declared just in Christ. And yet, the faith which justifies is not alone. In other words, what John Calvin is saying here is that the kind of faith that lays hold of the promise of salvation has a certain nature to it. James, the brother of Jesus, would put it like this. He said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, someone says that they have faith, but there's no fruit. It doesn't change the way they live. No one can look at them and say, Jesus is shining his beauty through this person's life. And so he asked the question, can that kind of faith save him? He goes on and says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and filled without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, someone raises the objection. Well, some people just, they just have faith in Jesus. And some people have a, a life full of good works. And James answers like this. Show me your faith apart from your works. Go ahead, show me. I'm watching. Let me see your faith apart from works. But he says, I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, Jesus makes a difference in the way I treat other people and the way I serve other people and the way I open my heart to other people. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here James says you can't say you believe in Jesus and it doesn't change your life. The Apostle Paul would put it like this. Many of you are very familiar with this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in trespasses and sin in which you used to walk. He's writing to these people who have become Christians and they're following Jesus in this ancient city called Ephesus. And he says to them, you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you used to walk. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then he says this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see that word masterpiece? I'm sorry, workmanship? That word in the original language is this word poema, from which we get the word poem, or more specifically, a masterpiece. In fact, the New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase of the Greek manuscripts, put it like this. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he prepared for us long ago. Do you think of yourself as a masterpiece? You think of the Church of Jesus Christ as God's masterpiece. I heard someone by the name of Paul David Tripp put it like this one time. He said, it's as if God has his palette of paint and you are an instrument in his hands. And he wants to go about creating a masterpiece. So, so he takes you in his hand and he dabs you in a little bit of his grace. And he dabs you in a little bit of his patience. And he dabs you in a little bit of his kindness. And he dabs you in a little bit of his goodness. And he goes about creating this masterpiece. And that's the idea, I think behind why Jesus brings people like you and me into a saving relationship with him so that he can, through us, bring blessing to this world. So my friends, that's the, the first point of application. Let us anchor ourselves in the cross of Christ. We don't earn salvation. We don't work for salvation, but we do work from it. We do work because we've experienced it. So here's the second point of application. Let's take an inventory of our lives. Jesus says that those who follow him have certain characteristics that propel them into this world to go about doing good, just like it propelled him into this world to do good. There's a specific place in the Gospels where Jesus said this to his followers. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus wants you to have your life lived in such a way that it displays his kindness and goodness. And so he says, let your light shine so other people may be able to see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So as we take an inventory of our lives, let's ask the question, is there evidence that God is working in our life in such a way that it spills over into good works in this world? The Apostle Paul once wrote to his young protege in the faith, Timothy, who he put in charge in this place called Crete, and, and, and said this to him, be ready for every good work. I, I, think about when you're called to be ready for something, right? Okay, there's preparation. There's something expected, so you get ready for it. So he says, get ready for good works. He also says to him, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In other words, Titus, I want you to live in such a way that other people can look at you and say, man, what a beautiful life. Look at all the good that he does in this world. And then he bases it in what Jesus does. He says to Titus that we are waiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. Do you see that word zealous? What comes to your mind when you think of someone who is zealous? It's someone who is motivated, right? It's someone who is energized. It's someone who is devoted to something. He says one of the reasons is Jesus gave himself for us is so that he can have a people who are zealous for good works. And then he says to Timothy, this is, a, I'm sorry, to Titus, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may devote themselves to good works. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Do you notice that key word in there? Devote. Jesus gave himself to redeem us so that we might be zealous for good works, that we might devote ourselves to them. So as we take inventory, my friends, let's ask, is this on our radar? Is God's grace expressing itself in our lives towards other people? Jesus one time said this, actually on the evening that he was betrayed. He told his disciples, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If Jesus, the vine, went about doing good, if we abide in him and his energy is flowing through us, then the fruit of our life should be that we go about doing good. And Jesus then says this, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. 
So friends, let's anchor ourselves in the cross of Christ. Let's take an inventory of our lives. Here's the third and final point of application. Let's encourage one another to be more intentional in good works. The book of Hebrews includes this admonishment. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. There's a place that I play in your life to stir you up to good works. And there's a place for you to play in my life to stir me up to good works as well. Let me just say, my friends, I think you guys nailed it on so many occasions. Do you remember a couple years ago when we assembled these care packages for immigrants at the border? Remember that time when, for whatever reasons, there was a surge of people at our border And so many of them had come a long way. Some of them fleeing persecution. Some of them hoping for a better life. And they were at our border. And we said, you know what? Forget about the politics and everything. There are people here who are hungry, who are thirsty, who lack basic needs. And I said, let's let's band together. And let's, let's come up with 100 care packages with basic things like toothpaste and a washcloth and some other key items. And you guys blew that challenge up. I think we took 140-something care packets to the border. There's a time when I said, hey, let's collect toys for Scotty's house. There's a surge in kids during this time in COVID when there's so many people, young people, who had to flee, had to be rescued from violence in their own house. And Scotty's house is needing help. And you guys came through on that. You've, you've risen to occasions of, of collecting food for our local food pantry, and, and you blew those goals out of the water. Many of you do live beautiful lives. I, I hear some of the things you do. I see how you devote yourself to good works in this community. I, I see how you've, you've given money to food pantries. I see how you've given money to people who care for those who are most in need. I, I've seen how you've, you've adopted children through different agencies in the world to send money to them so that they can have basic necessities of life. I see how some of you uh, provide clean water in different places. Let me just say to you, my friends, let's do this more and more. This is exactly what we're called to do. And Jesus, if, if we can't even give a cup of cold water without that escaping his notice and his pledge to, to reward us with that, let's lean into our design. And the purpose of his redemption, which is not just to to save us and escape us into heaven, but to remain here and to be zealous for good works. And so maybe one of the ways we can encourage one another is when we get together to be able to say, hey, what are some of the ways you have sought to be intentional in good deeds? How are you wanting to grow in this area? I'm trying to think through my own life and how I can be stretched in this. Give me some ideas. How might we band together? How might we encourage our, our church to take steps in this? Maybe we're just weary. We are doing good in the world, but, but we're tired. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, sometimes we get worn out. And we need the encouragement of one another to remember why we're doing what we're doing and how God wants to display his goodness through us. So let me just make a couple comments here. My friends, the church of Jesus in America is making headlines for all the wrong reasons right now. 
It is tempting to simply retreat, to keep our head down, and to hope for a better day. But what if instead of retreating at this moment, we surged forward in love and good deeds? What if we were the ones who began to stem the tide of people's opinion of Christians? What if, we could, what if people could look at Mercy Hill Church and say, our community needs more people like the people in this church. Just look at all the good they are doing. What about this? What if God wanted to give us at Mercy Hill Church an assignment to adorn the gospel of Jesus by serving the most vulnerable people in our community? What if he were to drop an opportunity in our lap and we realize this is the direction he wants us to go, to adorn his good gospel by serving the least of these in our community? Let me ask you a question. Would we be up for it? Would we respond if we took count of the cost and realized this is going to stretch us like never before? This is going to ask for more of my time, more of my talents, and more of my treasures. Would we be open for that? My friends, I hope we would say, yes, Lord. Use our ransom life in any way you choose. It is my delight to bring glory to Jesus. So if you want me serving the least of yours in this community, then let's do it. My friends, in the past, we've talked about this hashtag for BCS. We had it on some coffee mugs and some different cups and cards, and we wanted it to serve as a reminder for us that, that we exist for the mission of Jesus. And Mercy Hill Church ought to be a community of Jesus that is known for its mission in Bryan College Station. And we can't be that unless we are for Bryan College Station. And that desire is expressed in love and good deeds. So my friends, what I'm asking you to do is to enlarge your heart for this place in which he has assigned us to live. It is for this time and this place, at least for this moment, that we are called to live and move and have our being here in this community through which he wants to work in us to bring blessing to this world. So Mercy Hill Church, let's put it succinctly. We do not exist for comfort. We cannot exist for comfort. But we exist for the mission of Jesus. And so my friends, I hope as a result of these last six weeks together, we come away with an idea that we should be focused on the gospel of Jesus. We should be devoted to the community of Jesus. And we ought to be engaged in and propelled into the mission of Jesus in this community. Because my friends, if we are, Jesus is not only going to welcome us into his kingdom one day, this kingdom that's been prepared for us from the foundation of this world, but we're also going to be able to hear him say something like this, which he said in another place. Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. Wouldn't it be amazing if those words were spoken over you And wouldn't it be amazing if it was spoken about us? Let's just imagine us being together on that last day, banded together as people who've responded to the grace of Jesus. And he says, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your life.